Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I am your host, Pat Wright, and I am joined once again by special guest co-host Rosie Brooks. Welcome, Rosie. Thank you very much for having me. People who have listened recently to Opera for Everyone will recall Rosie from our Start Them Young episode. And Rosie is such an opera fan that she was eager to come back and join us for one of our more traditional style opera for everyone's. And I said, Rosie, what opera would you like to do? And Rosie, what opera did you pick? Um, The Merry Widow by Leha. And it's actually an operetta. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the difference... I didn't really realise in terms of the difference between opera and operetta, but it's just it's just lighter, isn't it, and, and smaller, and it's more accessible. I think. That, yeah, it's. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a, it's a self conscious definition by the people who composed them, the yeah. people who saw them, and the people who produced them, and the theatres that hosted them, and the audiences who saw them. So it's not a retroactive yeah. label that was placed on them. Uh, the people who wrote them knew that they were calling them operettas and were were quite proud to to do so right and this is one of the most famous operettas in the entire repertoire of operettas yeah and wasn't it it was the most famous well most most played work of all time at one point you know i didn't know that but i'm not surprised to hear it not surprised to hear it its original premiere was in vienna in 1905 and fun fact 1905 is also the same year that Richard Strauss, pretty much a contemporary of Lehar, had the premiere of Zolomé. Wow. <laughs> and for those of you who heard our show on Zolomé, by the time you're done with this, you will think, how is it possible that 1905 saw the huge popularity of both of these shows? Because they are very very yeah. different kinds of musical experiences. Probably as extremely different as you can get, I would have thought, within the opera and operetta, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really very divergent styles of music yeah. dramas, completely different. I say that and then suddenly all the similarities pop into my head, but it's very <laughs> different style of music um, and drama. And I promise you, you will find yourself humming more of the tunes from Mary Widow probably <laughs> than you than you do from Zolomé. <laughs> but but they're both spectacular. I'm a big fan of Zolomé. I, I loved it and it's it's deeply moving and thought provoking. And I love Mary Widow too. So I'm yeah. so glad you suggested it. And it is our first operetta. So it's going to give us a chance to talk about operetta as a as a form of of music drama or should I say music comedy. Yeah. And ah. its presentation. <laughs> <laughs> One thing to say about operetta is, having looked into it a little bit, is operetta really did have a period of time when it was a hugely popular art form. Yeah, which was what, the beginning of the 20th, end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th? Well, it has two, it has what I've, I have discovered, yeah. having yeah. looked into this, it has a golden age yeah. and a silver age, back to back. This golden age begins in about 1855, and it runs then transitions more or less into a silver age up to 1935. So about an 80-year period when operetta is wildly popular in Europe and also in the United States ultimately as well. And so bracketing 1855 is when Jacques Offenbach rents his first theater in Paris. 
And he is, he's a very prolific writer of operettas. He writes nearly a hundred of them. Um, he's also the, the fellow who writes the um, unfinished but often performed, others finish it, uh, Tales of Hoffman, but he's, yeah. he's the big operetta writer. He's the guy, by the way, who writes the very famous tune that we mostly know as the as the can can. Yeah, the infernal gallop. Yes. Yeah. I I just learned that today. You know, it's <laughs> yes. Da, 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 da. Yeah, that yeah. one. That one. The big can can. But that but that comes from one of his operettas, or it's a full yeah. length operetta. From um, it's a it's a spoof on Orpheus and Eurydice, or Orpheus yes. in the underworld. Yeah. Which. I mean, that's the, the we, we did the, the Gluck version of Orpheus and Eurydice here on Opera for Everyone, but that's, the Orpheus story is, I mean, it's foundational to opera and the history of opera. It's, yeah. it's, it's about as serious as it gets. It gets. And he's, um, but Orpheus in the Underworld is the silliest version of it, isn't it? It's, she does very badly in it, I think, from what I can remember. They all go for her at the end, which is where the can-can, it's supposed to be in hell. And everyone's going crazy, and poor Eurydice's in the middle, having a terrible time. <laughs> well, I mean, in the heart of the story of these of these two characters from Greek mythology is that the the power of Orpheus's love for Eurydice is so strong that he braves the torments of hell to rescue her, and this is what's dramatized in all these these grand these these operas and the foundations of opera and, and on and on and on and in this operetta that Offenbach writes he just turns it sideways I mean they don't really love each other he kind of just he just has to do this and he doesn't really want to have to save her yeah and it's yeah. just I mean that encapsulates the the cheeky attitude and making fun at people and their relationships that's characteristic of so many operettas yeah yeah and the the gods are all uh, the sort of flawed characters aren't they rather than being these ethereal amazing creatures isn't jupiter turn himself into a fly in order to yep. get with eurydice <laughs> <laughs> yes well the greek i mean to be fair the greek gods are always flawed <laughs> they're yeah, always yeah. They've got their issues, but the operetta as an art form is looking for a laugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very silly. Knows that people want to have fun, want to enjoy the tunes, go out humming and tapping their feet during it, enjoy the dancing. And Offenbach was good at that. And he is is the big name during this golden age. But there were many others as well, too, like Johann Strauss, for example. And then the Silver Age many say is kicked off in 1905 with the just unbelievable success of the merry widow our yeah. focus of our our show today yeah and um and then the the the, the other bookend in 1935 that sees really the end of this incredible popularity of the operetta i guess not hugely surprising is the rise of nazi germany because so many of the people involved in the production um in the librettos in the performance of operettas are Jewish and the pressure is put on the people in places like Austria and Germany is too much to continue the production of the operettas. Yeah yeah in Britain we we have uh, Gilbert and Sullivan as well which is a it's I don't think it's that big anywhere else but in in Britain it's still a major part of the operetta or opera canon and it's considered Certainly at, the, at UK places, it's it's in the canon of works that go through. So we have that. I probably grew up with them as much as 
opera or operetta from other countries, assuming they were as important elsewhere. I didn't realise it's just because they're British. So I was just overexposed to... I, I know all the Gilbert Sullivan operettas probably better than I know anything else. In, in, and it's just from having been bombarded with it as a child, really. You know, it's interesting. I, I don't want to speak for all other Americans, but I, I think the ones that I'm most exposed to are Pirates of Penzance yeah. and Mikado. Yeah. Those do get play here. I've seen some produced by opera companies or or by Broadway companies or other But I could literally I know the words. <laughs> yeah, I think I think they I I mean I my college did a Mikado, I remember. Yeah. The, yeah they I think here they're very good for amateur dramatic societies. So it's it's a, for universities and things like that. It's a good they're very easy to do uh, acceptably not necessarily flamboyantly but d- to a certain degree whereas Salome or other things when they're done in a sort of town hall they highlight how small the production is whereas Gilbert and Sullivan and, and probably the other operators I mean Mary Widow you could do a small version of it and it would still work whereas you can't really do a small version of Flying Dutchman or something because it wouldn't and, and in terms of the singers maybe you don't have to be quite you can still pass as to complete an operetta in the way that you couldn't torrent off to <laughs> Right. Well, yeah, I've read some commentaries that say after the, the operetta, which really does start and become wildly popular in Vienna yeah. in the beginning and in the German-speaking areas, and then it, it, it moves outwards and becomes more of an international phenomenon, yeah. then that's when you get musical theater, yeah. as we know it, developing which is a little bit of a shift from operetta. And, and it gets a little fuzzy about how you, where you draw the lines and how you make the uh, distinctions between some of these things. It's, yeah. it's one of those things, I know it when I see it, but, well, we, we're, not, we're, not going to, we're not going to draw those lines today. We're yeah. just going to enjoy the, the Merry Widow and appreciate the work that Lehar did to create this. And, and let's jump into it. Let's get a little sample of how this operetta opens. And we have a grand party happening at an embassy in Paris. Whose embassy is it? Uh, the Pontevedrian embassy in Paris. Pontevedrian embassy. I'm not yeah. familiar with that place. Uh, Pontevedria doesn't exist. It's a, an imaginary state somewhere in the Balkans. And that's all we know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. So we don't offend anyone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh. An imaginary Balkan state. And I will just put parenthetically in, the librettists were Victor Leon and Leo Stein, but this play was not conceived of by them. It was a play written by Henri Maillac, an 1861 comic play, The Embassy Attaché. And Maillac, if you've heard his name before, he was a very prolific, not just a playwright, but a librettist. He was one of the co-authors of the libretto for Bizet's Carmen, for example. He wrote many, many librettos. Oh, wow. with, yeah. Yeah, with, along with a colleague uh, for Offenbach that we were speaking of before. He's one of the co-authors of the libretto for Jules Massenet's Manon. So he's, he's very prolific. He's definitely in this world. And he had set it in his play, it was a, a German grand duchy. So that's just a side note. But when they made this particular opera, they said, yeah, let's just keep it out of Germany. Let's make it a, a fictional state in the Balkans an impoverished fictional state. Good to know that going in, but it it is a a fancy embassy in Paris, in glittering Paris, so it's going to be 
a glittering party. So we open and it's it's lovely. And shall we hear the hear the people having a a glorious time at this party at the embassy? Fabulous. Dort, in der Nische, sitzt sie mit Herrn von Rossi. Sind Exzellenz nicht eifersüchtig? Oh nein, meine Frau ist ein leuchtendes Beispiel von Sitzsamkeit. Schauen Sie nur, wie harmlos sie mit Herrn von Rossi plaudert. Camille, ich muss mit Ihnen sprechen. Sie machen mich selig, Rossien. Aber nicht jetzt, wenn wir allein sind. Ja, was schreiben Sie denn da auf meinen Fächer? Weil Sie mir verbieten, es Ihnen zu sagen, so schreibe ich. Ich liebe dich. This is Opera for Everyone, and today's show is The Merry Widow, suggested to us by special guest co-host Rosie Brooks. Rosie, I'm so glad you're here, and I'm so glad that you suggested this operetta for us to discuss today. Oh, thank you. This is brilliant. <laughs> It really is. What a fun show. I think you all are going to enjoy this. And I think you're going to want to find a way to see this show and could get this CD or pull it up on one of your streaming services and, and just enjoy it. I have been humming these songs for the last two weeks, listening to all of them and watching different shows of this. It's, it's very fun. Yeah. Very, very fun. Well, in the clip that we just heard, you not only heard this party and all the singing, I think you also heard people speaking. Yeah, and you're introduced to the, the not the main characters, the, the, the other characters that set up the scene, aren't you, I think? Well, yeah. I mean, certainly if you spoke German, yeah. you might have understood what they were saying. <laughs> no, as we mentioned, this premiered in Vienna and Lehar and his librettists were German speakers. So this is originally in German, though we will mention that Typically, when you see this produced in an English-speaking country, it will be produced in English. Yeah, I, I've not heard or seen a German version. I've only heard the English versions. And I think that's one of the things that's typical with operettas that are written in another language, mm. as opposed to operas. Yeah, I think I would, yeah, I, definitely, I would, I would say that. And I think it, yeah, it's, it's much more usual, I think, for, I think Offenbach tend to be, they, they tend to stick to the French a bit more. But I, I yeah. cer certainly this is, I was aware there were German versions, but I certainly, 
I've only heard an English version. Good news, I have CDs in both English and in German to play today. So we'll, we'll, we'll do a little bit yeah. of English and we'll do a little bit of German. But wanted you to know that the German was original. And if you, well, for instance, when the Metropolitan Opera does it, they do it in English. Yeah. I've also seen a San Francisco opera version of it done in English. Yeah. And I've seen clips of a lyric opera from Chicago. And they did it in English. And I saw the English National Opera one. And obviously that was in English there. Not, not absolutely everything they do is in English because they did do a co-production of Agnaten, but it tends to be in English. So Right. Well, Agnaten has specific requirements. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, it's very, I mean, some of it has to be done in the local language regardless of where, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is not the Agnaten show. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> okay. All right. So we are at this party and we're setting the scene and we're going to meet the ambassador who is throwing this party and that is Baron Zeta. His wife is a young woman. Mm-hmm. Baron Zeta is a, is a mature man, and he's usually yeah. played as rather a pompous fellow, a yeah. good comedic character. If we haven't said this already, there's comedy galore in this particular show, and as is the case with most operettas. And his wife is Valenciennes. They are both, obviously, Pontevedrians, as the ambassador and his wife. And there's a young Frenchman. The Count. Count de Rossillon. Count de Rossignon. And uh, so three people. Does that make a triangle? <laughs> and we assume the Count is handsome and that Valenciennes is young and impressionable. Is that- <laughs> yes, I've even heard it described by one director as an 18-year-old. I haven't, haven't yeah. read that a lot of places, but let's, let's call her yeah. 18. So an elderly man married to a very young woman mm-hmm. and a dashing Frenchman. So? Well... Although she is doing a very good act of not flirting with him and the Baron is convinced that she's such a good wife that she's even prepared to flirt in front of him with this charming Frenchman, he's quite convinced that there's no threat whatsoever, isn't he? He's just like, well, she would never stray. Why would she? And it's all going on in front of his eyes. Yes, these these three do form a bit of a triangle, but, but the Baron Zeta is is convinced that his wife is a shining example of wifely virtue. And he sees other men, his other countrymen, accusing their wives of flirting with the Frenchmen because, after all, they're from a a small, impoverished country in this glittering, gorgeous city of lights, Paris. And they're all worried about their wives flirting, but he's not worried because his wife is a shining example of wifely virtue. Yeah. And P.S. She's flirting outrageously <laughs> with the Count de Rossignon. And the Count de Rossignon is utterly smitten with the beautiful Valenciennes. And they have a moment alone together. I've something important to tell you. There's just one word which is worth a darling. No, no. That one word you and I must both forego. Valenciennes, you know that's absurd. The heart's own voice can be so clearly heard. My dearest friend, this torture is pointless. We'll have to stop meeting. Stop meeting? It's time you were married. What can you mean? You are my dream. others are my life and my 
kind of talk that I deplore. My marriage is sacred to me, and that means, as you must agree, an end to romantic adventure, avoidance of scandal and censure, and though we shall Listening to Opera for Everyone, and today's show is The Merry Widow, and we have just listened to, I think what I'll call the B couple here, Valenciennes, the wife of the Pontevedrian ambassador, the young woman who is married to the elderly ambassador, and uh, the Parisian Count de Rossignon who is very much in love with this young woman, this young wife. And typically she is pulling him close and simultaneously resisting him by telling him, but I am a respectable wife. But Rosie, tell us what we just listened to here in this particular translation of the song. Well, the versions that I listened to, the the line was, but I'm a respectable wife. Which is a more close, it's a closer translation to the German original. Exactly, but the the one we just heard now was marriage is a sacred thing, is that right? How does it? My marriage is sacred Sacred. to me. My marriage is sacred to me, which is further away from the translation, but the the translator must have, or whoever wrote this version, must have just decided to alter it. Well, and, and... This, I think, gives us an opportunity to talk about translation in general for the operetta, at least this operetta, because I actually spent quite a lot of time trying to make sense of putting these two CDs together and also make sense of the of the various versions of the operetta I watched online and in CD version to, to prepare for today's show, which is unlike an opera which has a reasonably set libretto, yeah. unless it's either edited down or unless there are various versions that the composer or the librettist themselves has has reworked or there, there may be one or two standard versions. There can be multiple versions of the dialogue parts in particular. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and clearly there can be different translations. And so the songs are gonna have less variety, although you can translate I'm a respectable wife to my marriage is sacred yeah. to me. But the the dialogue portions, which is over fifty percent of the words that you hear when you go to see this show, they can be um, they can be quite different. Is that do you think that's the trend with operetta, and that it's, that it's something that it was an allowed thing at the time? Because the going back to the Gilbert and Sullivan, there's a section which is used, and they change it every time, and they modernise it. So I don't know whether with operetta there's a there's a greater sway and you're a greater allowance, creative allowance for people to mess around with it. Well, and I honestly, I don't think it's just operetta. Uh, For instance, I'm thinking of uh, Daughter of the Regiment. Yeah, there's a spoken bit in there. Then we we talked about it when we did our show on Daughter of the Regiment that, uh, well, 
the late and great Ruth Bader Ginsburg even did a cameo role as a great lover of opera. Yes, yeah, so when she played the role of the Duchess of Crackenthorpe in The Daughter of the Regiment, which is a, a proper opera, she, it's, a, it's a spoken role, though. It's not a sung role. So there's, there's flexibility to change dialogue, which is not part of the score. It's just spoken dialogue. And that kind of dialogue, in fact, that, that role can be moved, even the placement of when the spoken pieces take place within the context of the score. That's flexible as well. Wow, okay, yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, as long as it, it doesn't materially change the story, and it, it certainly didn't. We, yeah. I noticed that when I was preparing for that one. So there's a lot more flexibility with dialogue, which makes sense than yeah. there is with the words that, that have to fit to the score. And, and you certainly see that when you, you see different versions of The Merry Widow, I have noticed. The, for instance, the San Francisco opera version that I watched, the dialogue script was written by Wendy Wasserstein into, for the 2001 version of that. Uh, the Met version had an English translation by Jeremy Sams. The new Sadler's Well opera version, which is what we were just listening to, had book and lyrics by Nigel Douglas. And they're all going to translate things differently. And you yeah. will notice even there are certain details which are different, some of which hark back to the original play and yeah. were in the libretto, some of which are added in to modernize and some of which are in for reasons that I haven't yet figured out, but I, yeah. but I know they exist. And it, it makes it fun, and it's also, it freshens up some of the, the show for people, and some folks are going to enjoy it and some aren't. But, yeah. but yeah. the tunes are st- all still there, and the, and the fundamentals of the plot remain. Yeah, exactly. And it's, I don't think I know another work that there's this many versions that are so different, actually. I think a lot, I mean, you wouldn't mess around with Boehm or something like that, because it's... The, you know, there are certain areas that you just couldn't possibly translate differently. Whereas with this, this seems to be, it does allow for that pull, I think. Well, and, and you have to fit the score exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Different, different kind of show, yeah. And I don't actually think this translation is, is changing it, the meaning that much. My marriage is sacred to me. I am a respectable yeah. wife. It's, you know, it's good to have both of those. And you'll see as we go along, there are going to be different they're going to be different translations of the titles of some of the songs and some of the words as we go along. But but the fundamentals of the story are certainly intact. Yeah, the intentions of the characters are the same. I don't think anything like that's been changed. Yeah. No, no, not at all. All right, so so we, we have a sense, and I think most people could understand what was going on. One of the other things I think is true about operetta, um, as opposed to opera, or certainly that I've observed, is diction. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's um, this sort of strange faux historical. I just, I, they're probably a received pronunciation, isn't it? It's it's a sort of of that era, but it's not. But it like the imaginary town. It doesn't exist either. It's what people <laughs> imagine people spoke like at that time, but they probably didn't. Well, there's that, and also, um, well, for instance, when um, I saw the metropolitan version, it's some sort of imagined pan-European accent that they all seem to be affecting when they speak, which is very, very comical. But also, I think they're speaking clearly, even when they sing, so that you can understand without the the surtitles when you see it. Yeah. Or the subtitles when you watch it. Yeah. Because it's meant to be understood more easily. 
Yeah, I think if you if you see an operetta, you don't necessarily need the surtitles because you would expect to be able to understand the articulation of the singing. Whereas if you go to see an Italian opera or something, even if you understood the Italian, the singing is so far from diction that actually it's only probably because you knew what they were going to be singing in the first place that you understand it, I think. Have you ever had the experience where you go to see an opera in English and you're glad to look at the surtitles because they're hard to understand what they're saying in English because of the of the singing being yeah, yeah, beautiful? The mag- I've seen the magic flute in English and it still required the surtitles, definitely. Just because it was sung in the Queen of the Night aria was as it is. It's more, it's, the, the, the words become almost just sound, it's a soundscape as opposed to an articulation of something that you could understand. You certainly couldn't transcribe it from her, from her singing. So, where, whereas the operettas, you can understand it. You actually you find yourself looking up a lot less. It's um, it's interesting. It's interesting. Well, we have a sense of these of these characters now. Mm-hmm. She is ultimately flirtatious. She's sort of push and pull, right? She's like, yeah, <laughs> come closer, go away, come closer, <laughs> go away. <laughs> a flirt for sure. <laughs> And what's his feeling about her? Uh, well, he adores her and he would do anything for her and he wishes that she wasn't the respectable wife that she is. So, But, uh, you know, they're playing with fire. Yeah, yeah, fingers get burned. <laughs> mm, someone can get burned, but uh, Baron Zeta, the ambassador, remains convinced that she is a model of wifely virtue. And now we get to meet a new character. Who's the comic even more comic relief on top of the, the comedy of this is the, the sort of secretary and the go-to get everything done. And my pronunciation is probably not spot on, but it's no use. Uh, you know, I don't think I could do any better than that. <laughs> he is he is a fun character. And he is a non-singing role typically, although I did learn that later on, several years after the initial production, Lehar did write a song for him that gets occasionally performed in the third act but i don't think we we have that to offer but keep your eyes open folks if you see that at some point it's a treat but he's typically just a spoken character and and it can be really amped up with the comedy yeah but he comes in and what is on the baron's mind when he sees the secretary to the embassy pontevedrians are worried about their finances very worried we said they were impoverished the Pontevedrians are on the brink of bankruptcy and they need to do something pretty soon to resolve this situation. And they are looking for opportunities that might arrive. This is obviously the embassy in Paris. So they're working out how they can fill the coffers of this once amazing state that has now fallen on harder times. Yes, and the Baron Zeta, the ambassador, has a plan. Well, there is a young lady who has been recently widowed on her honeymoon night, having become a millionaire from fairly humble means as a farm girl, and is not necessarily looking for a new husband, but you know, is, is in a position where she could remarry and, and it could change the fortunes of not just an individual, but the country in which they represent. Yeah. The man that she had married, and by the way, this, this one woman whose husband has died is the titular Mary Widow. The man that she married was the court banker for Pontevedria, the very wealthy court banker. And depending on what year you see the production, the number of millions that she now possesses changes. In some places it's 20 millions. They never say millions what, but it's 20 million, 40 million, 50 million. But a great sum of money which she now possesses and 
she is Pontevedrian, and so it's very important to Count Zeta that the person she chooses to marry is also Pontevedrian to keep the money in the country and not a Parisian. Yes, because then, after all, she has a home in Paris. The money would evaporate into to, to France, and so Pontevedri would would probably go bankrupt. So they have they have to encourage her to marry a Pontevedrian. Does he have anyone in mind? There is a chap that Baron describes as being the most eligible candidate for Hannah, who is the, the merry widow. But he is a little wayward, and he is not necessarily interested in the proceedings because he's more interested in a place called Maxime's. He's interested in Maxime's. So he's actually, he works at the embassy. So mm-hmm. he's not far away, really. Yeah. But Max And Maxime's is this famed Parisian nightclub. Yeah where all sorts of interesting things happen. But the ambassador, Baron Zeta, sends his secretary, says, go find him. We need him. He has a duty to the fatherland. Yes. So the secretary makes a few little jokes about finding this wayward aristocrat who works for the embassy, but he's going to go and, and do his best. Yeah. And meanwhile, the merry widow, Hannah Glavery, is expected. So she arrives... And this is the, one of the most visually spectacular scenes, isn't it? I think in the opera where there's often on the stairs, the sort of one side of people and one side of another people, and it's the, her massive entrance. And in terms of costumes and things, they make her stand out as this sort of a massively glamorous character. And she enters and all the gentlemen fall at her feet on either side in order to welcome her. And she isn't sure whether or not it's because of her sparkling personality or perhaps the many millions and the, so the, the Baron welcomes her, and then that's, that's the first song, isn't it? Yeah. And just as a side note, there are two Frenchmen, because this is a, an embassy party, so we have yeah. not just the Pontevedrians, we have quite a number of Parisians as well, and there's kind of this comic duo of Parisians, Saint-Brioche and Cascada, who, who always seem to show up together mm-hmm. and vie for her attention. And they, they spend, actually, I think, more time arguing with each other about who's going to capture her attention and her yeah. heart than they do trying to impress or woo her. And just another piece of the comedy that happens yeah. here. But she is, she makes a grand entrance, and she is charming to the extreme and glamorous, and we all fall in love. Bitte meine Begeert, und wenn wir nur, 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 wenn wir n
That was the glamorous and very wealthy Merry Widow, Hannah Glavery herself in The Merry Widow by Franz Lehar here on Opera for Everyone. And she has men circling around her, vying for her attention. And meanwhile, we have our young couple who... Honestly, they can't be a couple because, after all, Valencien is a respectable wife. Yeah. Her marriage is sacred to her, but she has a uh, an item that many women in this day had as part of their outfit at a formal occasion. She has a very lovely fan that she uses to keep herself cool. It's also a an implement of flirtation. Uh-huh. And uh, de Rossignon the young Frenchman who's flirting with this young wife of the Pontevedrian ambassador, he uses it for some flirtation of his own. Yes, he, he, he steals the fan momentarily and he writes, I love you on it, doesn't he? Oh, on the side that faces her. So the world can't see it, but she can see it. That is flirtation. <laughs> well, that's, that's charming just for her, but something goes wrong, doesn't it? Well, she pretends to be shocked initially, but she quite enjoys it. And then loses the fan. Oh, young women will do such things, <laughs> won't they? Okay, it's not just young women, but <laughs> she misplaces the fan. And that, that's going to be an ongoing problem, mm-hmm. that misplaced fan. You know what I thought of when I first saw this? There are serious operas that involve misplaced fans, a misplaced fan causing trouble. Tosca, anyone? Oh, my goodness, yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Do you remember when Scarpia finds the fan? Okay, that's yeah. much darker. Yeah. Much. Yeah, but much still mis- misuse of a fan. You're right. <laughs> yes, the fan causes no end of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> and even when even when Scorpia finds the fan, he grabs the fan and he holds it up. Oh, I this one just sends chills down my spine. He's like, Oh, Yago had his handkerchief and I yeah. have my fan. Yeah. And he knows he's going to cause trouble. Well, you can all rest easy. This does not cause that level of trouble. But it's an operetta. We told you it's fun. Even though it's actually more incriminating because it's got the words I love you written on it. Yes, (laughs) yes. But don't worry. (laughs) No bloodshed here. No. All right. So the missing fan that says I love you in a man's handwriting. Mm -hmm. Is at large. (laughs) <laughs> so Valencien is, meanwhile, the, the wheels are spinning in her head and she's, she's trying to come up with a plan how she can deflect any concern her husband may develop. He has none now, but things could change if he sees this charming young Frenchman continually buzzing around her. It, well, if she is a respectable wife, the only way he can become respectable is if he becomes a respectable husband. And the best opportunity available at this precise moment is, of course, the Merry Widow. So she suggests that maybe he should marry the Merry Widow, that he would be a respectable husband, and they could continue to flirt. So if de Rossignon marries Hannah Glavery, there's no problem, because then he would be married, and two married people can certainly talk and have conversations and spend time together, but... He's not Pontevedrian, is he? No, he's Parisian. So that doesn't <sighs> that work with be. the Baron's plan at all, does it? No, that would probably make her husband more upset mm. than anything yeah. else, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So they everyone takes off and goes to another part of the mansion for the embassy. 
and stage is momentarily empty, and the secretary, Nejus, enters with the wayward Count Danilo. Well-dressed he may be, but Danilo looks like he's had kind of a rough night out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's definitely been partying for a long, long period of time, and he's not really in the mood for anything too heavy, I think. <laughs> No, not at all. They they have a very important assignment for him, and and all he wants to do is is get a little rest. Honestly, he's he's a party boy. So Danilo has not gone home to go to bed. Duty calls, but he doesn't understand why the ambassador isn't there to tell him his duty. Because after all, the ambassador is paying his attentions to yeah. the wealthy widow, yeah, <laughs> and trying to charm her while he's waiting for Danilo to appear, and Danilo refers to the Baron as the fatherland, which is funny right there. Yeah. (laughs) Are we ready to meet Danilo? Yes, definitely. Fatherland, I must protest When all the day I've worked my best I claim a diplomatic right To personal pursuits by night I'm sitting at my desk by two It's often three before I'm through And when I've worked flat out like that Of course exhaustion knocks me flat I snooze behind enormous piles Of things entitled secret files When doing cloak and dagger stuff One's profile can't be low enough I place a notice on my door Detained in conference till four And thus I justify the boast That I am always at my post But days of such excessive length Can tax one's intellectual strength And that is why when darkness falls Nocturnal recreation calls Then off to old Maxim's To dream romantic dreams With many a lovely lady Of reputation shady No, 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 juju Clock, no, margo, fru, fru In no time I'm forgetting My dear old fatherland Then when the dancing's done And kissing time's begun I hope you like that Maxime song. Yeah, it's fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. I think that's my favorite song. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get to hear that tune again later in the show. But just because we like it so much and it's not actually that long, would you like to listen to the German version of that as well? Yes, yes. All right, this is the one. We'll give you more details on these two recordings that we're using 
after the the break and the the halfway point in our show like we typically do but this is uh from the german version that we're listening to with the philharmonia orchestra and this is where danilo is sung by eberhard wechter Margo fru fru, sie lassen mich vergessen, das teure Vaterland. Dann wird champanisiert, auch häufig tampaniert, und geht's ans große Küssen mit alle diesen Süßen. Lalo, Dono, Juju, Glocklo, Margo fru fru, sie lassen mich vergessen, das teure All right, you're listening to Opera for Everyone, and and we have really felt ourselves going to Maxime's, or at least we want to go to Maxime's, and I have a question for you, Rosie. <laughs> <laughs> Lolo do do joujou, clo clo margo frou frou. Who are these ladies? <laughs> well, um, they are the grisettes who... The grisettes. Yeah, who, who <laughs> work and live at well at, at Maxime's and they are the entertainers they dance and entertain the customers who come to Maxime's to see the shows that they put on which often involve uh, skirts and a lot of a lot of acrobatics should we say <laughs> uh, yes I mean I think we can picture a kick line can't we we can indeed yes <laughs> And we can, we can picture the women with that have the skirts with the little ruffles around the inside and they lift it up and kick the legs and mm-hmm. a can-can dance exactly. that we were mentioning earlier. Yeah, the grisette. That was not necessarily a word that either of us were terribly familiar with before this show. And in fact, the word is used a lot in the original version of this show, but not so much in the current translations into English yeah, yeah, because it's not as familiar to English speakers these days but it, it, it is it is key to understanding some of what happens later on particularly well there are no spoilers in opera or operetta <laughs> for that matter yeah. when Valencian later will um, pretend to be a grisette she mm-hmm. will pretend to be one of these dancers of Maxime's or you can also think of the dancers of a place like the Moulin Rouge. Yeah. It's a similar sort of nightclub vibe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so a man like Danilo is not talking about meaningful attachments with a soulmate or a life partner. He's talking about transitory pleasures with these lovely ladies, dancing ladies, and talking about enjoying their charms. In fact, one of the translations that I was listening to called them Shantuzis. Oh, wow. With a Z. With a Z. <laughs> Shantuzis. <laughs> but it's how he, he forgets about the fatherland. He doesn't, he doesn't sound like an entirely dedicated public servant to me. <laughs> but, <laughs> but then again, the, the public service that he's going to be asked to do is to marry someone to keep money attached to Pontevedria. So mm-hmm. it's all a, a little questionable anyway. He insists that he can't do anything until he takes a nap. Nejus 
says, okay, fine, you get some sleep. But of course, what happens the moment he lays down and falls asleep? This is when Hannah arrives, isn't it? And finds him taking a nap. Yes. She, she wakes him up and they are a little frosty at first. And it is clear to everyone that this is not the first time they've met. In fact... No, it is not. <laughs> they didn't necessarily part on good terms, put it that way. That they may have once been sweet on each other, but they certainly weren't now. Awkward, to say the least. And Danilo says to her, thereby making clear to us, that she has rejected him and she married the rich old court banker. We mentioned Mm -hmm. that earlier. And he says to her, well, you're now rich, but you're not married anymore. And you can see he's throwing insults, but he's hurt. Yeah. So his take on it is that she rejected him. And her take on it is that he couldn't marry her or wouldn't marry her because she was a farm girl and that his family wouldn't allow it. So as far as she was concerned, she was the one that was rejected and that was where things were left. Right, because he's an aristocrat. Yeah. And an aristocrat can't marry a farm girl. Yeah. Or at least that's what his family told him. Yeah. So she married someone else who promptly died on the honeymoon night and left her... The Merry Widow. And unlike her, he has sworn off marriage mm-hmm. because he has a motto. His basic principle, he explains later to Baron Zeta, fall in love often, get engaged seldom, but never marry. Charming. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, you know, it's the party boy motto, isn't it? It's the one who wants to hang out with the grisette. Mm-hmm. That's what he tells the Baron Zeta when the Baron Zeta gets around to telling him... Your duty to the fatherland is to marry the wealthy widow. And by the way, Baron Zeta has no idea of the history between the two of them. Right, yeah. Because they were sincerely in love, these two. And that becomes clear in a production of this where the two actors are telling the full story with every bit of themselves. You know the instant that they're together that they really are in love. Yeah. And it didn't work out. And that's why they're so mean to each other. Exactly. And you know the minute that they're together that they really are in love and that they are a match of equals and they're both hurt and they're both angry at each other and you're, you're rooting for them to get together, but you know they both have these obstacles to overcome. And there's going to be the fun of this story. And she's a smart woman and he's a headstrong man and it's going to be fun. It's going to be a fun ride. And that's exactly <laughs> what happens. So when she leaves the stage and the Baron comes in, the ambassador comes in and tells him his duty is to marry this woman. And he explains the whole duty. He says, here's what I'll do. I can't marry her. Explains his principle, fall in love often, get engaged occasionally, seldom, and but never marry. He says, here's what I'll do. I can't marry her, but I will prevent her from marrying a Parisian. Yes. I will thwart any marriage to a French person, Yeah. but she's not going to marry me. Any marriage to a Pontevedrian is fine. That's all you care about. Yeah. But it's not going to be me. Yeah. So the next song is The Lady's Choice, which I think was possibly a tradition in balls of that time where the ladies have a little book and the gentlemen have a pencil and they have to write in it who, who gets the next dance. It's a, a lovely opportunity for a sort of ensemble piece with everyone, all the, all the women showing off and they get to choose their partners. And it's another chance for all the men to flutter around yeah. our merry widow and vie for attention. So how does this ladies' choice dance play out? Well, the, the ladies have a little book and I think the gentlemen have a pencil 
and it's the one opportunity in society where the gentlemen have to ask the ladies if they can dance, not the other way around. So it's all lovely. And obviously the Merry Widow is a very popular lady, so the two French gentlemen who have their eye not only on her but her fortune, they decide that they're going to get the dance, so they try very hard. They both press the issue quite firmly. <laughs> Part of our comic relief, yes. <laughs> yes. But she insists, as it's, it's her decision, that she's going to bestow the dance on Danilo. In part, mm. perhaps to, to get his attention a little bit. They're obviously still crackly, but uh, <laughs> yes. but she's she she wants to get his attention, so she, she gives him the dance publicly. Says the the dance is his. She's providing him an opening. Yeah. She's giving him a, a chance, right? Yeah. And here you go, sir. Do with it as you will. And what does he do with it? Well, he rather than accept gracefully, and thus our story would end. He um. <laughs> In a fairly ungentlemanly fashion, he decides he's going to sell it to the highest bidder. Mm, not what she had in mind. No, not very classy. And this obviously sparks interest, especially for the two Frenchmen who are determined that they are going to be the one that's going to marry her. But he sets the amount at 10,000 francs, which is a lot now and would have been a phenomenal amount of money then. So it prices out a few of the competition put it that way yes and and this money of course would go to the fatherland so it would yes. be furthering the aims of the baron yeah. to help out Pontevedria. yeah but this it isn't just the two French chaps there's also Rossillon and perhaps in a bid to impress Valenciennes he agrees well Valenciennes encourages him yeah. yes she says oh here's your opportunity to get close yeah. so that you can be married so that we yeah. can respectably be with one another but then that back fires because obviously she becomes jealous <laughs> so it's it's really hard to please Valenciennes yeah. <laughs> and she kicks off and gets very upset and he mystified because he feels like he's done the right thing consoles her and they they disappear off leaving Danilo and Hannah alone oh lovely yeah. <laughs> now he's obviously not done the most gracious thing so obviously she's going to be slightly annoyed and she's I wouldn't say sulking, but she's definitely holding her, withholding emotion at this point. Yes, to, to the point when he says, okay, well, then I'll claim my dance. She rejects him. Yeah. Well, no, sir, you gave it away. You yeah. can't take it back. So how does he deal with that? He, he sort of dances around her until she, she relents. He, he, he obviously has charm when he wants it. So he decides he's going to charm her. And they do, in the end, have a little waltz, which is rather sweet. And it shows that there is obviously an undeniable connection between the two and it's partly that's why that they're annoying each other so much because they both they can both feel it I think and we all can feel it yeah. these two we, we hear the music swell and we know <laughs> that they're destined to be together but it's going to take two more acts yeah. of this beautiful <laughs> beautiful show for it to finally come together well that is the end of act one is Oh nein, der Tanz ist doch wohl mein. 
listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. It airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts where you can find a rich trove of past episodes. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined by special guest co-host Rosie Brooks. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, 
and I am joined today by special guest co-host Rosie Brooks. Welcome back, Rosie. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Delighted to have you here, and delighted with your choice of music and shows. This is this is a really fun show, the operetta The Merry Widow. How did you end up picking this one? I've always liked little bits of the music, and I never really realized so many pieces are from this that I knew just by ear. And there's one song which I think is coming up quite soon, which was one of my grandma's favorite songs, and she used to sing it all the time. And I never realized what it was from. So I think it was quite a famous gramophone record. I have a feeling it was, although it's from operetta, I think it was in the popular canon, certainly at the time, and probably even later into the 20s, 30s, 40s. Now there's a much bigger gap between popular music and opera and operetta. But I think at the time it was more all as one, I think, as entertainment. So. Yeah, I have read that popular music oftentimes came from operettas yeah. at this time. Just like, again, probably not so much now, but at a certain point in time in the 50s, 60s, 70s, popular music might come from musicals. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm think of the age of Aquarius yeah. or other songs that have, were very popular in different musicals. I can think of I can think of quite a few, but yeah. but we would get way off track yeah. if I did that. <laughs> now is time for us to let everyone know what we've been listening to in full. We have two CDs that we've been listening to, one an English version and one a German. Would you do the honors and let us know about the English version that we've been listening to? Yes, of course. It's the new Sadler's Wells Opera Company, and it was in 1986, conducted by Barry Wordsworth. The English book and lyrics were by Nigel Douglas, and the cast are Hannah Glavery is Eden Hari, Danilo's Alan Oakey, Valenciennes Helen Kukuret, uh, Baron Zeta is Julian Moyle. And for our German language version, we are listening to a recording made in 1963 with the Philharmonia Orchestra with the conductor Lovro von Matacic. And in this recording, the part of Hanna Glavery was sung by Elisabeth Schwarzkopf, Count Danilo was sung by Eberhard Wechter, Valenciennes was Hanni Steffek, Camille de Rossillon was Nikolai Geda, and Baron Zeta was Josef Knapp. So thank you to everyone who was involved, and many unnamed, of course. Thank you to everyone involved in the production of these beautiful, beautiful pieces of music that we're enjoying so much. And you know what comes next on Opera for Everyone? Oh, is that this the helmet? The opera yes, helmet. it is. Oh, this is so exciting. <laughs> the opera helmet quiz. And I... I had a little idea in my head and I didn't I didn't prepare anything ahead of time but I um, I had an idea that maybe I'd actually do it as a quiz yeah so Rosie are you ready for take a quiz yeah yeah I should have got I've actually got a hat from the Met that I have that has got that's like a Tarnhelm um, a crocheted Tarnhelm but I'm not sure where it is I would have got it ready <laughs> crocheted well <laughs> you know it's it's radio so you could pretend I could pretend <laughs> imagine the scene oh beautiful hat Rosie beautiful yeah. hat thanks so much <laughs> all right Rosie yeah do you recall when this opera premiered 1905 oh well done well done and where does act we've only done act one but it's a, but it's a it's a meaty act where does it take place act one in the french in uh, sorry in the pontevedrian embassy in paris and what 
is the ambassador so concerned about, the Pount of Edrian ambassador, the host of this great party? What is he so worried about? Their uh, pending fiscal calamity should all the money that the Merry Widow is uh, holding, if that, if that was to go out of the country and to a Parisian, it could mean bankruptcy for the country. Oh no, and why is this Merry Widow the one who has all the money? Why is this this woman possessing so much money? Well, she she didn't have it to start with. She was a farm girl, but she married very well and very not for long. And her elderly husband died on her honeymoon night. So she's now the wealthiest woman around and, and eligible as well. Well, she's a widow, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so it seems like a bit of a contradiction in terms to be a merry mm-hmm. widow. And why is she so merry? Well, I think it's made clear from the, the start that she has a true love interest, but that didn't come to fruition before she married the elderly gentleman that bestowed all the cash on her. And so it was possibly a marriage of convenience and it didn't last very long. So there's no, no attempt to be made to think that the, the chap that she married who sadly passed away was of any consequence to the story. Well, I think we're meant to think he, he yeah. lived a, a full life yeah, already. He yeah, was... yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, there's no, no tears shed here. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so... There are, I think, other people we should make sure that we recall before Mm -hmm. we leave the opera helmet quiz part. There's another couple where things are not necessarily going smoothly for them because they're not truly a couple. Tell us about the woman Valenciennes. Ah, well, she is a respectable wife. (laughs) Or so she says. Or so she says. (laughs) But she has an irresistible fascination with Count Rossillon. And they flirt outrageously and quite flagrantly in front of her husband. But it can't go any further and it shouldn't go any further. So she she suggests that he should marry the widow because then he would be respectable and she would also be respectable. But actually when it comes to it, she doesn't want him to at all because she's jealous. And does her husband suspect her at all in spite of this outrageous flirtation in front of him? No, he just thinks that she's she's such a respectable wife that she can she can flirt with him because she's she's doing what she ought to be doing so not at this stage certainly not <laughs> and is there any physical evidence of the relationship between Valenciennes and this Parisian man de Rossignon there is there is a fan with the words I love you written which is fairly um, incriminating <laughs> yes the lady's fan and who is in possession of this fan or, or where is this fan who's not in possession of this fan? um it's well, at the end of Act 1, I think it's currently missing in action, isn't it? He's written I love you on it and she's misplaced it. That's where, where we're up to. It's a bit of a problem. It, mm-hmm. it kind of moves around this fan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but she wants to find it so she doesn't get in trouble with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's this fan will, will reappear inconveniently for some. Yeah. <laughs> and meanwhile, Count Danilo and... The Merry Widow, their relationship is... Complicated. (laughs) And what happens right at the end of Act One? They have a dance together and I think the audience can see that the true love is there. They just don't know it yet, I think. Mm. Well, interestingly, there's this glamorous... I'm I'm moving out of the Opera Helmet quiz. You did brilliantly, by the way. (laughs) That was brilliant. Complete pass, yay! <laughs> you know what that means. That means you can come back on opera for everyone, of course. <laughs> Amazing. 
Um, well, one of the other things that has been slipped in in the first act, but really makes a difference because it is the basis of act two, is that the Merry Widow, who has a lovely estate in Paris, courtesy of her former husband, she says, well, this might be a nice party at the embassy that you've thrown to impress the people of Paris, but let's have a real Pontevedrian party at my estate. So act two means party number two. Mm -hmm. And so she's invited everyone, the Parisians as well as the Pontevedrians, to her home. And act two will open at her home out in the garden. And the Pontevedrians will be in their national costumes. And the Parisians will will dress like elegant Parisians. Yeah, so the, the next song is the song that I mentioned, which I think was a popular hit in the... I don't know, 1920s even, is the um, song which is supposed to be a folk song, but obviously it's of an imaginary country, but it's the folk song from Pontevedria called Vilia. It's a wonderful love song. So it's Hannah's opportunity to sing of love. Yeah, all of our guests listening. So I think we'll we'll listen. It, the, the, the song has a bit of an introductory song to it, and then you'll know when the actual folk song part yeah. kicks in. You'll know, and we'll we will we'll know which part your grandmother sang, sang yeah. to you when you were little. We'll know. <laughs> Suddenly she feels
Well, that is a beautiful tune. This is from The Merry Widow, the very beginning of the second act. And Rosie, tell us about your connection to this beautiful folk song. Oh, well, this, Avelia, uh, was um, my grandma's favorite song. And I think we, I think she had it on a gramophone record. I remember listening to mm. it a lot when I was little. And I think it was part of, um, there were a lot of popular songs at the turn of the 20th century. And I think it was one of the ones that was very, very popular. She used to sing it all the time. And it's the story of a, a wood nymph and a young man who falls in love with this wood nymph. It's all very beautiful and romantic and quite mysterious. It's the Pontevedrian na- national costume and their national dress. It's part of their culture. And this is at a party where they're celebrating that. I could completely imagine humming this to get a young child to calm down. And... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Well... All of the people who are attending the party there that the Merry Widow is throwing are enjoying it tremendously, but one person is conspicuously absent, and that is Count Danilo. Ah, yes. Mmm. And Baron Zeta is very eager to have him show up because he has a duty yep. to Pontevedria uh-huh. to woo the beautiful young widow. <laughs> and Nejus, his secretary, says, well, sir... Danilo is not coming. He said not even 10 oxen could drag him here. And the Baron is not pleased with this whatsoever. But, of course, Danilo does show up. Yes. And all kitted out and looking very handsome and mysterious. <laughs> yes. Yes. He, he, he Somehow he looks better than all the other men yeah. in his native costume. Yeah. <laughs> All right, with Danilo back on the scene, what does the Baron want from Danilo? The Baron is concerned because Rossillon is moving in on the Merry Widow. And whilst Danilo has sworn off all girls forever, well, not girls forever, no, 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 he's sworn off the idea of marriage, sorry. Yes, that's right. <laughs> All the way around. Um, he is, he's agreeable to the idea of seeing other gentlemen off because he... He also is quite competitive, so he's prepared to interfere and, and, and prevent any other Parisians from coming near the Merry Widow. And Nejus says, well, I know an important piece of information about the Count de Rossignon. He is in love with a married woman. Aha, and, but he doesn't name the married woman. And so, no. Baronzetta, he says, well, that's obviously the answer. This needs to be encouraged and that he should be encouraged to go after the married married woman, as opposed to Hannah Glavry. Little does Zeta know that the married woman is his very own wife, Valenciennes, yeah. the highly respectable wife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's that's all part of the fun. <laughs> and Nejus has plenty of opportunity to make fun of his boss behind the scenes, and, you know, and he calls himself a diplomat and things like that, but... The Merry Widow herself, Frau Glavery, is about to make her entrance, mm-hmm. and she's left alone with Danilo. Mm-hmm. And she's looking pretty wonderful too. That's not isn't oh, that normally a moment she, she comes in looking? We've got the best costumes. <laughs> well, of course. Of yeah. co- well, it's her party too. Yeah. It's her yeah. party. She's the hostess, and she's feeling confident that, given enough time, she can rekindle the affection Mm -hmm. that she knows Danilo has for her. Mm -hmm. And his pride, his pride is desperately hurt from her having gotten married to this other man when 
he was unable to marry her. And so she needs to give him a little time, but there's, there's no reason she can't be enticing in the meantime. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what happens in the next scene. <laughs> she, there's this just a darling song where the two of them are essentially like sparring partners with each other, mm-hmm. where he's trying to find out what she's up to and she's trying to find out what his problem is. And she pretty much makes fun of him for being a silly, silly man, a silly, silly horseman, or a dummer, dummer reitersmann. And this is all while they're dancing. So it's sort of semi-flirting, semi-teasing each other. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. She's just, she's she's making fun of him. And I, I think we need to hear this one in the German because there's just nothing cuter than the dummer, dummer reitersmann. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, she has teased him and teased him and exited the stage by saying, silly, silly horseman. And he says after she leaves, oh, but if she only knew how wise I am. <laughs> so he knows, he knows, and he, he wants to give in, but he can't. So he doesn't get to indulge in those thoughts for very long before all these guys wander into the stage and... They're trying to figure things out and discuss how to handle women and, well, it's time for one of those moments that we have in operas or operettas. When they blame all the women for everything, basically, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, tell us about this particular number. It's a a beaut. (laughs) All all the, the male protagonists get together and decide that that it's not their fault, that nothing is their fault, that they could get by if it wasn't for women being so difficult to understand, so confusing and so bizarre, I think, is is the basic premise. Ah, the study of women is hard. For us men, it's a devilish job. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, all those poor guys. <laughs> and how much easier it would be if they were women were just more like them, I think, is the, is the basic premise, isn't it? Yeah, I, when I, the first time I heard this, I was thinking of um, My Fair Lady. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, when, yeah. when Henry Higgins sings, why can't a woman be more like a man? <laughs> Except it's, it is a tune that will stick in your head. Uh-huh. <laughs> Where, and this is this is another one of those songs where the translation ends up being different from version to version. Yeah, I've heard lots of different versions of, of, the, of the, the title, even not just the, the, yeah. Exactly, and and the more recent ones do because of the because of the way the syllables work. They'll mm. do girls, girls, girls. Yeah, because of they want to get it into one one syllable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's, but you know they they just say that because women some women want one thing and some women want another like what's a poor boy to do really yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway we're gonna let you listen to this in a moment but I'm gonna just tell you that I watched online a version of this produced in Zurich and it was fun because this is I didn't see this in other versions that I saw after the men sing their song there's just a moment that they interject where basically the men exit and all the women enter <laughs> and they sing a version of this same song where where they put in lyrics yeah. with the study of men is hard it, and yeah. the trouble that yeah. the women have with the men and it was it was very cute too just ah. to <laughs> maybe that balance was a tr- things out. tradition with operetta that they fiddle around a little bit and yeah well we're all just there to have fun yeah, aren't exactly. we exactly <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's hear this one. All the women, all the women, did a problem, he's quite right. How to keep them nice and happy every day and every night. How to keep them, how to keep them, ever faithful, let us know. There is no cause, I am guarantee, as we are about to show. The first response to admiration, darling, you look sweet today. The next requires vituperation, kindly honor and obey. The third demands a life of laughter, playful creatures women are. And is the thing that after champagne and caviar. Fourth desires a love, platonic converse and philosophy. The fifth is rather more myronic, that one sounds my cup of tea. While some enjoy a little teasing just to wait there. You're anxious to find out the scores. You should study with women alone. Everyone is a different game. Not the same, 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 same. Made them clean, nice and slim, golden curls. It was clean like the purest of pearls. With a smile, she'll be gone, but you'll find in a while she'll make mince meat of you, my friend. Shame, 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 shame. 
<laughs> well, wasn't that a fun song? Mm, wonderful. My, fav- <laughs> my favorite. <laughs> it's good. It's good. It's one to, it's one to hum. <laughs> well, all the men leave. Danilo is there. Hannah comes in and she knows she's getting close to her goal with Danilo. And she says, well, if you don't love me, you could advise me. Should I marry the man that I want to marry? And you can see the steam coming out of his ears. He's furious. He's jealous beyond words. And he starts shouting, why are you getting married already? And she knows. She knows he's this upset because he cares. <laughs> and she's calm and she's, she's playing him. And she says, well, I don't have to get married right away. I think I would like to enjoy Paris. I want to have some fun. What should I do for fun? And what's his first suggestion for fun? Well, the Pontevedrian national dance at the embassy. Which is... <laughs> yeah, not, not, not her first choice <laughs> at this point. And then she gets a little more what she's expecting him to say. Cafe Maxime's. And you'll hear a little bit of that tune, Maxime's, and then it's going to resolve into a tune which might not yet be familiar, but it will be. Which is their, their waltz, their, their beautiful piece of music that shows the love that they genuinely have for each other. And it's the waltz that becomes known simply as the Merry Widow Waltz, mm-hmm. or words unspoken, mm-hmm. lips are silent, or however it variously is mm-hmm. translated. And it's, it's lovely, and if you are familiar with the music, you know that things are going to be all right when you <laughs> hear that music. Meanwhile... Valencian and Camille de Rossillon are having their little issues. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and this fan, which has been passed around and trying to figure out whose fan it is and stirring up jealousy everywhere, Valencian reclaims it. She's found it. And Camille de Rossillon realizes he's being rejected by Valencian, who wants to remain a respectable life. Mm-hmm. And he, he just begs, well, at least give me a souvenir. She does, but not before writing, I am a respectable wife of it. So in writing, she says, I am, this is her refrain, I am a respectable wife. (laughs) So it says, I love you on one side and I am a respectable Mm. wife on the other. And she insists that he get married and he says, well, because I love you, it'll break my heart, but I will obey it. And she says, but it's hard for me too, but proprieties demand it. And he launches into this exquisitely romantic song about Tender as a rosebud blooms the light in May, so now within my heart a passion blazes. And it's a lovely song, sung in a beautiful tenor voice. Just as the sun awakens, the sleepy buds of May, so does your beauty Hearts on your 
From de Rossignon to his lady love to the respectable wife Valenciennes in The Merry Widow by Franz Lehar. So is that goodbye? Do they go their separate ways, Rosie? Well, they're in a garden and often in gardens you have maybe summer houses or in this case pavilions. Mm. And his song was very romantic, so... Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Um, With the intentions of separating for good, I think, were... um, she finds it irresistible and the pair disappear into the pavilion. And of course, right around this time, the respectable wife's husband shows mm-hmm. up on the scene and he has learned that de Rossignon is nearby and mm-hmm. perhaps he is even in the pavilion, mm-hmm. the pavilion, <laughs> with the woman, the married woman that he loves. And he's so eager for him to be in a relationship with this married woman he loves. He's very excited about this because mm-hmm. that means he'll give up his claim on the merry widow, the mm-hmm. rich widow, Frau Glavery, and he looks through the keyhole and he cannot believe what he thinks he sees. It looks like his wife is in there. And as he's dealing with these emotions and the knowledge and doesn't know what to think, Nejus, the secretary, mm-hmm. has a bright idea. He switches... Valenciennes and Hannah in order to protect Valenciennes reputation because everyone knows that it could be reputational ruin for her otherwise. So as a kind gesture of sisterhood, Hannah jumps in and claims it was her. <laughs> yes, so when they open the door to, to the pavilion, out come de Rossignon and Hannah. Uh-huh. And of course, witnessing the emergence of these two, not just the Baron, but also Danilo. Oh my goodness, Danilo sees that mm. Hannah was in the pavilion with de Rossignon, yeah. the one who's got designs on marrying her. And does she deflect any of the blame or his suspicions? Well, no, because she's quite pleased. He's jealous, isn't she? Quite pleased, actually. <laughs> she's very pleased. In fact, she's so pleased that she smiles and announces their engagement. Uh-huh. <laughs> They are going to be married, she says. She's, and she asks him to say, well, oh, darling, won't you please repeat those lovely words you said to me? And he looks so confused and <laughs> just like a deer caught in the headlights. <laughs> and he has to go back and sing in a slightly different manner, but sing this love song again or parts of it that he has just sung to his true love. He sings it again for public consumption. <laughs> to Hannah so that everyone can see. And the Baron Zeta is beside himself because it means that de Rossignon will marry the rich widow. He's a Parisian. That's ruin for his country. And Danilo is beside himself. Because why? Because he's actually jealous. And even though he's not agreed to or in any way expressed an interest in marrying her himself, he doesn't want anyone else to. (laughs) Yes. And Hannah's taking all of this in. And even though his words say he doesn't want her, yeah. she she can see. And you can see the triumph on her face. <laughs> she knows. She absolutely knows that she's she's clinched it. She's clinched it. And he, he is seething and she is triumphant at this point. And act two ends 
with this beautiful song, this fun song, where she sings about living the Parisian life because, after all, she's going to get married to a Parisian man, or at least that's the cover story (laughs) at this point. Yeah. (laughs) Tra-la-la-la-la. We've still got one act to go, so it's not in the bag for Hannah and Danilo. Anything could still happen at this stage. And Danilo has promised to take Hannah to Maxine's. Is that still an opening for a possibility? So he still has the possibility, doesn't he? Because he's, he's going to take her to Maxine's for a Parisian night out. Yes, but there's a little plotting seems to be going on between Hannah and Valenciennes with this whole Maxime's business. Ah, yes, because Valenciennes wants to dress up as a grisette, doesn't she? Yes, and Hannah has great many resources Mm -hmm. at her disposal. Mm -hmm. A lot of money. We may have mentioned that a few times. And Hannah thinks that maybe she can, in her own home, she can satisfy the desires of Danilo. By recreating Maxime's Mm. in her Mm. own it's a possibility. She's she's dropping a few hints. So mm-hmm. let's uh, let's let's go out with this festive music about living the Parisian life, the end of Act Two, and uh, then we'll find out what happens in Act Three. Listening to Opera for Everyone, and that was the rousing conclusion to Act Two of Franz Lehar's The Merry Widow. And we are ready for Act Three and Third Act, Third Party. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was only after I finished watching this the first time I realized that every single act of this show is a party. Uh-huh. One of the reasons the costumes are so fabulous. 
Yeah. Oh, wait, I have, I have just something to interject here. Did you know that one of the phenomenon that was the case with this opera was that it was intimately intertwined with the sale of goods at department stores? Oh, wow. They would have ma- Merry Widow sections. Well, it's about the time that department stores were really becoming a huge aspect of cities. Yeah. Um, New York, for example, or London, these places would have sections where they would sell the hats from the Merry Widow or, or different elements of the costumes, and they would be real trendsetters, style setters, because these were set in, now we, we kind of keep it at the same period of time when it was originally produced, yeah. but they were of the time when they were originally yeah. produced. And they were always fabulous outfits. These were not people who were suffering and peasants in the dirt and having a difficult time. And no, these were glittering, glamorous people. And to this day, the different companies that put this on tend to have beautiful costumes that people enjoy looking out or possibly even wanting to own. (laughs) (laughs) And even, I have to say, the first time I heard the phrase Merry Widow had nothing to do with this show. It's a it's a kind of lady's undergarment. Oh right. Are, have you are you familiar with no, that? No. no. <laughs> it's it's a it's a particular kind of corset. Oh, which must presumably be from this, from the. I have no idea. I I did not look up the history of it, but yeah. it is a particular. I mean, you can Google it. Trust me, you can. It's a particular kind of woman's corset called a Mary Widow. Wow. Okay. Oh. Well, there you go. Homework. Um, <laughs> all right. Act three. And Neju's our charming comedic character, lets us know that we are in the improvised cabaret of the Grisette, which he's set up on the grounds of Frau Glavery's palace. And the Baroness Valenciennes is also playing the part of a Grisette. Mm-hmm. We mentioned the Grisettes in part one, but those are those can-can dancers, those mm-hmm. dancers at Maxime's. Mm-hmm. With their high kicks. And they're just having a good time, and they're, they're wanting to make sure everyone else is having a good time as well. But not every production that you see of The Merry Widow is showing the grisette at an improvised Maxime's at Frau Glavery's home. Yeah, that's true, because some of them it's actually in Maxime's, isn't it? So they move the story slightly, which it, it, that doesn't affect the outcome or the plot, but it's, it's slightly more confusing isn't it, if it's Maxime's itself, because it means they're at work, as it were. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, exactly. It doesn't change anyone's motivation or the plot mm. at all. Uh, it's a little more complicated in terms of, I think, set design. It's yeah. a little more work, a little more expense. Mm-hmm. It does require all of the characters to, to leave and go to Maxime's. But interestingly, the, the, and this is the original concept in the original story, is that Frau Glavery has just hired all the employees of Maxime's to come to her home. So when Danilo goes to Maxime's, it's empty, so he comes back to her party instead. Exactly. Right. And he's delighted mm-hmm. to see them all. And in some way, he sees, oh my goodness, look at what she's done. She's brought them all mm-hmm. here. And just that effort on her part is enormous mm-hmm. and impressive. And... Valenciennes, on the other hand, just is having a blast. She's leader of the grisettes as it mm-hmm. as it comes through. And again, Act Three gets Act Three is short compared to the other two acts, but it can be played out in different ways. The couple of the versions I saw have quite a long 
dance sequence in the beginning at Maxime's, mm-hmm. or there can just be this adorable number with the Grisette and Valencien uh-huh. leading them, singing about being Grisette and what it means and having a lot of fun. Auf dem Boulevard am Abend, Trippeltrap und Trippeltrap, da flanieren wir Grisetten, kokettieren auf und ab. The Grisette are having a good time, Valencian is having a good time, and, and Danilo's having fun. Mm-hmm. Hannah wants to, uh, to know if Danilo is happy with the treat that she's arranged. Yeah, and I, I think he is, obviously. He's, he's, he, it's his life, and it's a, a way of her showing a sense of humour about his character, I think, isn't it? That she's, she's prepared to accept him as he is. Yes, and she's... She's playing with him a little bit, and and he says, well, wait, don't mock me. I have something important to discuss with you. And she's thinking, oh, maybe this is yeah. it. Regardless of the fact that he has not made any proposal, she's not allowed <laughs> to accept anyone else's either. Right. And she just, like, oh, can, can this man not say it? All right, here you go, Danilo. I will not marry de Rossignon. No big deal. I'm not marrying him. And he's like, what, what? But you announced to everyone, I'm not marrying de Rossignon. Goodness me, I have no interest in that. Don't worry about the fatherland. It will be fine. 
And he says, but but you were in the pavilion with him. She's like, I wasn't in the pavilion. He's, but I saw you. <laughs> and does she explain to him what happened? Yeah, she, she says it wasn't her. She was protecting the reputation of a married lady. Oh, so so she not only explained that she wasn't doing this thing that would upset him. She's showing what yeah. a good woman she is. What yeah. a kind woman yeah. she is. <laughs> and as these two go back and forth, and he's so close so many times <laughs> to admitting his love for her. Does he ever do it? Not yet, but might be about to. Yes. And because it's an operetta, of course, how does he do it? In song. Yes. <laughs> Words forbidden, hope long hidden, love be mine. Strings are playing, softly saying, love be Listening to Opera for Everyone, and this is the Merry Widow, and that was the Merry Widow Waltz. We finally get a little satisfaction. What do you think of that one, Rosie? Oh, it's lovely. That's also one of the famous tunes that's made its way out of the operetta, hasn't it? It's something that you hear orchestral versions of it a lot, I think. 
Absolutely. And and because we have two versions, I think we should listen to the other one as well. The Merry Widow Waltz from The Merry Widow, and uh, we're we're getting close to the end, but we've got some plot pieces to put right at this point. We've had our two main characters come together, but we have a few little pieces that still have to fall into place. Baron Zeta, our ambassador, comes in, and and he's like, "Oh, I'm so sorry, I'm intruding," and Danilo says, "Oh." I'm so glad you're here. I have some good news. Frau Glavery is not going to marry the Frenchman de Rossignol. And he is thrilled to pieces. And he says, and by the way, it wasn't even Frau Glavery who was in the pavilion with de Rossignol. She was only covering for a married woman who shouldn't have been there. And he's now suspicious once more. Well, who was that other woman? And at this point, he receives this fan, this incriminating fan, and Valencien is on the scene, and she's deeply concerned. <laughs> and what happens when <laughs> when the Baron Zeta sees this fan? He opens a fan, and it says, I love you, which further mm. increases his suspicion, and he uh, accuses his wife of flagrant infidelity. 
and shocking behaviour. And given that he is now available to marry because clearly their marriage is dissolved because of one act of infidelity. Yeah, he ju- he just he just announces, <laughs> yeah, I'm divorced yeah, now. Boom. Um, that, that being <laughs> the case, he becomes an eligible candidate for Hannah. Which is- yes, and so when, when he proposes to Hannah, what does she say? Well, initially she's speechless, and then I think she, she gently and kindly rejects his slightly outrageous offer. Right, but she even gives a very compelling reason to him to make him not even want to press it. He makes this outrageous offer, and she explains that in the terms of her husband's will, when she remarries, she loses the money. So... She's not, so he loses interest. <laughs> so he loses interest. So she's not the offer he once thought. Yes. And that not only changes his view, it also changes someone else's view. Well, Danilo realizes if that's not the barrier, she's suddenly not on this pedestal because of this inheritance she has. Suddenly they're equal in his mind with his take on things. And that being the case, he can't help himself. And he just declares that he loves them. Oh, my goodness. Mm. So romantic. Mm. <laughs> and, and then she knows it's all going to be fine. Uh-huh. And once they've agreed to get married, this doesn't happen in all the versions, but in one of the versions I saw, and this was a nice touch, <laughs> she, she adds... Footnote. <laughs> oh, there was one other stipulation is that not only do I lose all of my money, all of my money goes to my husband... And I become the head of the National Bank in Pontevedria. So it's a win-win, yeah. really, for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so ultimately, the Baron gets his wish, and yeah. Danny Lowe does marry the Merry Widow. And she's merry indeed. <laughs> uh, yeah, and at this point, Valenciennes is able to persuade her husband that he has been misguided in his assumptions. And the fan that says, I love you on one side, she turns over... And it says, I am a respectable wife on the other. So he forgives her. Yes. Yay, a happy yeah. ending. <laughs> Except for the Count de Rossignol. He's been rejected. Oh, yeah, yeah. There, I mean, there, are, there is definitely collateral damage. There's no question. But the main characters that we've invested in are all all right. So. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he'll, he'll find something to do with himself. Yeah. <laughs> and because it's, it's been this way at the end of every act, there will be a rousing finish uh-huh. where we we get the reprise of some of our very fun songs, depending on which version. And that is how we will go out as well, with a rousing song. Fantastic. Rosie, thank you so much for joining us once again on Opera for Everyone. Thank you. It's been brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host today, Pat Wright, joined by illustrator and opera lover Rosie Brooks. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast 
on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Opera can be challenging, but everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable. Because opera is for everyone.